Well, good afternoon. I thought I'd just share a short little note on the Jing. I don't know if I've mentioned it. I know I've mentioned it multiple times, but I don't know how recently I've mentioned it. That uh, I use the Jing in a very similar way to how Carl Jung used it. He used it to access his intuition. Uh, he believed in something called uh, synchronicity and a collective unconscious. You know, this um, store of archetypes, meaning. Uh, the, the example would be in the I Ching, uh, rivers and mountains have very similar meaning uh, to the archetypes uh, in so many other cultures. So it's funny because just the other day, uh, I did my own I Ching and, and I came up with, uh, often as I do, which is weird, nearly all of my readings are um, hexagrams that are, are, are moving, tra changing, transforming. So the end result hexagram that I received uh, just the other day was number seven, which is chu, uh, multitude. Also sometimes considered army or uh, a cup, depending on the translator. Multitude. We use multitude because there was no organized army in China at the time. So it doesn't ref, uh, refer to an army. It refers to the people because the people made up the army. So multitude. Uh, and the reason why I mention it is the same day that I received uh, number seven, sure, multitude, was the same day that uh, in my studying of James Joyce, I came across the Melian uh, dialogues. And what that is, is uh, a historian. I actually found out via Nietzsche, believe it or not, a historian at the time. Uh, pardon my uh, Thucydides. Thucydides. But he's considered one of the first um, unbiased historian of his time. And one of his first books was, what was it, The History of the Polynesian War? But don't quote me on that. And so he was telling the story of when Athens went to the city-state of Athens from Greece, went to the, uh, the island of Milos. And now Athens was at war at the time, not with Milos. Milos was not at war with anyone. And this is the lesson of uh, the Melian uh, discourse, dialogues, whatever you want to translate it as. So Athens went to Milos and said, submit, right? We're going to occupy you for our own good, for our own safety, for our own uh, military reasons because right well they didn't even bother that's my point they didn't bother with the because they just said we are going to and so of course the people of Milos said but but we're neutral we're not against you why can't we just be neutral and Athens said no you cannot be neutral to us, there is no neutrality. If you're not with us, you're against us. 
right? Because the way they explained it in the dialogue is uh, if you don't fear us, who is going to fear us? Because if you don't back us, you don't fear us. If you don't fear us, you don't back us, you weaken us, if nothing else, um, optically. So therefore, it harms our strength. So you being neutral actually robs us of our strength. And since the Athenians were there in a might makes right, um, what would you call it? Uh, well, their ethos and their reasoning was the same. We are powerful, therefore submit. We want to protect our power, therefore we want everyone to submit uh, or support. And since Milos well, was not an enemy, so of course the first option would not be submission. But because they weren't supporting, because they didn't want to get involved, they were considered by the Athenians a threat. Right? So the same day I'm learning about the, the Milos, which, oh, by the way, the big takeaway for me, the Melian dialogues, is without any um, pretense or propaganda, right? The, the Athenians went to, to Milos and said, listen, this is, this is the situation here. Uh, we have enemies uh, that are looking for any avenue, any opportunity. So for that reason, we need you to be overtly supportive of us, thereby, if nothing else, demoralizing our enemy. And uh, and at uh, uh, as I said, the the more likely reason for the Athenians was that they believed that uh, neutrality made them look weak. Anybody who didn't fear them or support them uh, made them look weak. Therefore, uh, risked this power that they had. So the same day I'm reading about this, I get the hexagram. Sure, multitude from the Yi Jing the Chinese Book of Change. And in it, this hexagram number seven, as I said, is considered multitude because army doesn't get the whole idea. I mean, there was a time, I guess, when you could translate to army and understand it just means it's a group working together, right? They're all on the same side. But fast forward to today, it's got much more militant, uh, violent even um, uh, connotation. So this is why I like Master Huang. He's translated to hexagram seven into multitude because, as I said earlier, there was no independent uh, standing army. The army was made up of the civilians, the population. Right. So, uh, as the hexagram goes, it says, "Where there is contention, multitude arises." Right. As you can see. Uh, in this case of uh, Athens and Milos, right? Because there was contention, because they wanted something and Milos misunderstood or they wanted something different, plus there was contention elsewhere because they were at war. This led to multitude, right? Because you have different factions, right? Because you're not all working together in this situation. So, the hexagram says that to be yielding and not control, 
right, if you're not in control. That means you have no chance of winning a conflict, right? You can be wielding this idea of, say, judo, this idea, or akido, uh, which actually is about this idea of using uh, your opponent's force against them by yielding, but redirecting that force, right? So you can hear shades of uh, uh, the art of war, uh, this idea of strategy. So it goes on and says, know your limitations, right? Know your strengths and your weaknesses, right? And it says, lead the multitude in retreat. And what it means by that is when a conflict cannot be won, retreat is wisest. Right? If you remember from the, the, uh, the book of war, the art of war, there is a lesson that to not be blinded by certain victory, not be blinded by what your enemy might do, uh, always assume, have a strong sense of doubt that it might be subterfuge. But number one to remember is you're likely to to mislead yourself more than than or not more than, but as likely as your enemy might try to mislead you, right? Because you want to see what you want to see. So that's why it goes on and mentions to conserve your strength for final victory. So remember, retreat is not defeat. Retreat to fight another day. So this lesson of everyday life, don't be so stubborn, right? Because as Nietzsche said, worse than convictions are lies. So don't lie to yourself, right? Coping strategies, um, self-soothing strategies, if they're not benefiting you, right? Uh, if you're not better today than you were yesterday, then you're getting worse. So it, it recommends to consider retreat as another strategy because it allows you to conserve your strength for final victory. And Confucius actually said multiple retreats it does not deviate from the normal course. So what that means is if you stay on your path with your goal in mind, you can still concede in areas and yet achieve your end goals. The end result can be what you were hoping for, but the path that gets you there is almost certainly not going to map out exactly the way you planned it. Right? So it goes on and says, uh, the I Ching, considered using force as an evil and taught that military affairs should be approached with caution. So the purpose of war should be righteous. And they go on and talk about the two forms of righteous war, to overthrow a tyrant or to protect one's country from invasion. Once again, these lessons can be about how you manage your own state and, uh, and your, uh, your perceptions, but as well as how to organize and manage and lead. Unable to contend 
turn back, right? What, what are you doing? Why would you risk complete annihilation? Because either the field wasn't to your advantage or the situation wasn't to your advantage or maybe you misunderstood um, the pros and the cons. Again, once again, you should turn back inside and, uh, and look at your own intentions and your own plans. I've mentioned this before. If you're unable to content, turn back. Submit to the truth. Right? How many of us nowadays could take this lesson? That I understand that you, you believe this to be the truth, but when all signs point to error, as Carl Jung said, if what I held to be true uh, serves me less than what I considered to be error, I will be guided by the error. Right? Because the Yi Jing goes on and says, changing one's opinion is peace. Right? Again, we're talking about multitude, contention, changing one's opinion. There's an expression that I absolutely adore, that there is no solution without compromise. That arguably, I used to talk about relationship selling uh, when I was in the bank, uh, but I actually think it was this concept that made me among one of the most successful, not just in, in sales numbers, but unlike any other salesman, I never sold anything that somebody didn't truly want. I mean, in a 25, 30 year career, I only had, uh, what would you call that, buyer's remorse a couple few times. So for the industry I was in, that is astonishing. Because it's normal for people to have buyer's remorse. I have it constantly. But when you're selling based on multitude instead of contention, I know I sold with a number of other individuals who felt that their job was to talk somebody into a sale, right? To convince them would be like, you know, the Socratic method with rhetoric. And instead, the way I saw it, as I said, relationship selling, is I got to know their needs. And I sold based on benefit. And if they had a contention, if they had something that was of issue for them, I would figure out what was of issue and figure out if it was an objection I could overcome. So if you meet a strong enemy with goodwill, a lot of the times you can either erode their confidence, because again, you're throwing a little wrench in their work, but more importantly, you actually put them off. Because if you act in an unpredictable manner, particularly in a situation like this, then, well, you could uh, subvert their expectation. Because very often I see this uh, where, uh, when it comes to, to arbitration, disagreements, we talk about this in psychology, right? If we have two people in contention, what we end up having is, say, we'll have one side who might be a little bit, uh, what would you call it, uh, emotional. And they might say, well, I want a 100% raise, and I won't take anything less. And we often see that the other side will take this personally, and they'll be like, well, then you get nothing. You get nothing. But where I actually appreciate 
the difference, and I have seen it firsthand, is rather than treat these objections as a challenge, see them as an opportunity. Right? When someone expresses an obligation, um, an objection, it's because they want to be convinced that not what most salesmen think. They think it's a no veiled as uh, some sort of, and I've been trained that way. They say, well, it's just a no that's veiled. That's not true. I know this for myself. If I'm not interested in something, I will say no. I will. And what I mean by that is my proof to that is that I had very few buyer's remorse. So I didn't just convince people in the moment or wore them down or cajoled them or, or what have you or berated them with my will like many salesmen tend to do. I would endeavor to not give up, not take a no, and at least not take the first no. But more importantly, I would endeavor to understand their objections. And in so doing, not only was I not acting as if we were enemies, as so many salesmen might do, but more importantly, it, it engendered a sense of camaraderie. Because I changed this dynamic from, uh, you know, me against you in this battle of sales, changed it to, no, here, listen, I'm here to help you, right? Because my job here, even though nobody wants to uh, save money, my job is to prevent future, um, you know, uh, calamity, as it were. Kind of like uh, the grasshopper, if his job was to to uh, to coach other grasshoppers, as it were. Right? So that's this idea of meeting a strong enemy with goodwill. Right? So it's really quite funny how that works out. How many times I saw people who just take great pleasure uh, in uh, messing with, with salespeople to be completely thrown off when I didn't treated as um, contention because I treated it as a multitude, right? I saw them as not somebody I could think for, but certainly somebody that I could empathize with, right? So turning contention into collaboration. So when meeting an enemy, the example in the Yi Jing is the me and Shu clans, you explain the situation. So rather than just attacking or crushing or leading with, um, with violence, if, like in the Melian debates, if you were to approach them, and again, I, I give Athens great credit for not having said, well, if it's for the kids or it's for your best interest, they were very honest and said, no, it's for our best interest because we don't want anyone to think we're weak. But they approached in a very militant way. Maybe if they had approached in a much more goodwill sort of uh, fashion, maybe Milos would have understood that their act of, of neutrality didn't make Athens feel better, likely made Athens' enemies feel more empowered. So in reality, as I've said before, if your goodwill is, is, is not um, embraced as you'd expect it to be, don't blame 
the target of your goodwill, look inside and re-examine uh, your, your idea of goodwill, the nature of your goodwill, your intention. Right? So uh, inferior persons should not be employed in positions of authority because this is what the, the Yi Jing is trying to get to here. Right? Inferior persons has to do with their motivations, their understandings. It doesn't have to do with, with certain individuals that don't have the ability uh, to be better. Arguably, as we learned about sure multitude, number seven of the Gua, we learn that it's actually teaching these lessons. So an inferior person would be somebody who didn't think of the multitude, treated um, disagreement as contention rather than confusion or uh, communication that maybe had broken down. But yes, yeah, so uh, I just thought I'd share that. I thought the uh, the Melian uh, debate is something that we could teach our modern politicians today. Right? It's not them versus us. It's not you or them. It's not are you with us or are you against us which turned off Nietzsche. It is not um, uh, as Emerson, who was excommunicated because he felt he could, uh, um, he could commune with providence as easily in nature uh, as he could anywhere else. So he didn't understand why he was forced uh, to, to worship um, in a brick-and-mortar building. Or Tolstoy, who called that uh, there can be no um, there can be no question as to what the teachings were that got him excommunicated as well. Walt Whitman was labeled as having created his own religion. When if you actually look, it's no different than the lessons that we've been told. But the real difference is, instead of keeping the lessons, the the truths alive. Many people who have uh, many people have allowed their ego or contention to get in the way. Understanding that the multitude is as foundation, it is the individual, but as much it is the family unit. It is a five family unit of of houses called a B as well, uh, and more importantly those. Villagers make up the society, make up the multitude, make up society. And arguably, when the goal is to keep the society together for as long as possible, we use different tools, rules, religion, um, uh, you name it, right? Uh, humor, identity, culture, language, um, you name it. We use it in an attempt to keep the system working for as long as possible. There's a, a philosophy that speaks to all of these um, unspoken rules that keeps society together. This is the truth that goes back to Greece, the truth that's resident in the Chinese Book of Change as well. This idea that it's only honorable to be better than your previous self, and you should be better every day. But never forget, 
that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. That for you to achieve your maximum, for you to become this ultimate individual that you would like, it relies on the multitude, right? You are your brother's keeper because without them, there would be no you. Without you, there would be no them. This is the lesson of equanimity that's resident in just about every philosophy on this planet. The truth of a communion. Uh, that's what uh, William James was getting at with his radical empiricism. He believed that we could all tap into a collective unconscious. This is why I wonder if uh, Carl Jung had read, uh, because it was it was published posthumously, but it would have been uh, before uh, Jung began uh, work on his idea of the collective unconscious. And of course, Jung, with his idea of a collective unconscious, is resident in the Vedas, uh, Shakti, uh, to Vedanta and Kashmiri Shaivism, uh, Dakini in the Tibetan right, Yogacara. Um, honestly, you can choose what you want to call it because we don't see a, a demarcation between thought and action. Right? There is no separation between what you think or what you feel or reality. Everything is an aspect of creation of divinity, of providence. So there is no separation between what I think or feel or what others might think or feel, right? My well, uh, wellness uh, is dependent on my neighbor's wellness. But I'm just rambling at this point. So on that note, I will just leave it there and I hope you have a fabulous day. And thank you for your time.